The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. So I have a fascinating question for you today as we begin this brand new series. What should people think when they hear the word church? Now, listen, I get it. I understand you all have real lives that you have to pay attention to, right? You got to go to work. You got to raise your kids. You got to go to school. So, you know, just I understand, you know, who has time to think about things like this, but just, you know, humor me a little bit this morning and play along with me, right? What should people think when they hear the word church? Maybe an even better question is why, right? Why should people think anything when they hear the word church? Why should people think or feel anything about this word that some Jewish carpenter, right, who basically lived in what was thought of as the armpit of the Roman Empire, right, and who was crucified by the Romans, just like so many other um, people were, why should we today think or feel anything about this guy named Jesus and, and some word, something that he called church? I mean, why, why is it that we even know his name? Right? Why, why do we know anything about him? No famous historians wrote about him. No Jewish historians wrote about him. No Roman historians wrote about him. And, and yet, how is it that we actually have four accounts of this man's life? Right? That is all undeniable. Those facts are undeniable. And what's also undeniable is that his church, the church of Jesus, is all over. It is found all over our world. It is huge in our world. And it began more than 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire in a little place called Palestine. And it began as a movement around a very, very simple idea that Jesus was who Jesus claimed to be. And it was this very simple idea, and it was the testimony of a group of eyewitnesses to a very specific event that began the church. Now today we're going to be beginning this brand new series called Church Is. It's going to take us through the first part of the book of Acts. And, and, uh, and, and this is going to be a very important series for all of us. It's going to be important if you are very familiar with church and you've been coming to church for as long as you can remember. It's also very important for you if you are brand new to this whole thing called church and you don't have a whole lot of time um, into this thing called church. And so you just want to understand more um, because, um, because in the very beginning, in the very beginning, the church, it actually began as a movement. And so as, as long or as short as your experience with church may be, if the church began as a movement, then, then you would kind of expect, right? And for those of us who would actually call ourselves a part of the church, we would actually hope, right? We would actually hope that the church, that it would continue to move, that it would continue to move here in our congregation, in our community, in our part of the world, but it would also continue to move all throughout our, our world. And my goal today my goal today for all of us as we begin this brand new series together is that we would all start thinking a little bit more or perhaps maybe even rethinking at an emotional level about what it is that church is. And it all starts, right, it all starts with this little word, this little Greek word I'll put up here on the screen right here. And the Greek word is ekklesia. Maybe you've seen this word. Maybe you've heard of this word. Maybe you haven't. Um, this little Greek word, it means a gathering. It means a congregation, right? Some of you, you, you knew that. And all throughout the New Testament, whenever this word is found, right, that's what, it, that's what it means. It means a congregation. It means a gathering. It means an assembly. 
And when Jesus launched the church, when he began the church, as we're going to discover in just a few moments, right, he began his gathering, his movement, his assembly around this very specific idea with a very, very specific mission and a very, very specific focus. But then something terrible happened in the course of history. As time went on, there was a transition that took place away from the idea of a movement to a location. A transition from a gathering around an idea to a gathering around a hierarchy. And in this terrible, terrible period of history, in many ways this actually resulted from a misunderstanding of this very simple word, church. And uh, this very simple word, which could have been no more clear in the original Greek, was actually substituted and changed and transitioned into a different word, an old Prussian word, actually, and the word is kirsha, right? An old Prussian word, kirsha, which literally means Lord's house. And Lord in this context isn't referring to Jesus, it's just simply referring to some kind of a ruler. Now, I'm not going to bore you with all, all the history behind how exactly this happened, but over time, this very subtle transition and change, it changed this idea of a gathering and a movement and an assembly to the idea of a place. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, okay, right, who cares? Right, who cares? Why does this matter? Well, here's the thing. You can lock the doors of a kirsha, but you can't do that to an ecclesia. Right? And so this incredible, this ter horrible, horrible uh, linguistic change, it actually resulted in some terrible, terrible theology because before long, the church was actually located in a building and whoever controlled the building controlled the church. Whoever controlled the building controlled the scripture. Whoever controlled the building controlled the people. And for those of you who know your history, you, you know that whoever controlled the church and the building and the scripture and the people many times controlled the government as well. And then in the year 1524, something incredible happened, something amazing happened. History tells us, right, that this, that this man, a man by the name of, of William Tyndale, actually the namesake of my alma mater, he traveled to Wittenberg, Germany, because he had heard that there was a German monk there by the name of Martin Luther who did something that nobody else had ever dared do before. He had just translated the New Testament into the language of German for the very first time. And this actually inspired this man, William Tyndale, to do the very same thing and to translate the scriptures into English. Now, Tyndale is a very interesting guy if you want to study more about him. And he had an uncanny sense. He had an uncanny knack. For, for languages. In fact, Tyndale, he could actually speak Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Dutch, German, Italian, and Spanish as well as English. And so when he came across this little Greek word, ecclesia, in the Greek New Testament, he didn't translate that word into the old Prussian idea of the Lord's house. Instead, he translated that word as congregation, because that is what the word actually means. Ultimately, that decision ended up costing Tyndale his life. He was actually brought back to England, where he was tried for being a heretic. He was hung, and then his body was burned in the city square, but by then it was too late, because the word right, was out, quite literally. 
And English-speaking people now had, for the very first time, a copy of the scriptures that they could actually read for themselves. It was William Tyndale who actually did for the English-speaking church the very same thing that Martin Luther did for the German-speaking church, returning the church, returning the gathering of God's people back to what it was intended to be from the very beginning, what it started off as on day one, a growing, multicultural, multi-ethnic, mission-centered movement focused around one very specific idea with a specific mission and a very, very specific focus, which is exactly what Jesus said that it would be. Because when Jesus gathered his disciples out in the middle of the desert and he asked this incredibly famous and incredibly strange question and he looked at them and he said, who do people say that I am? It was the apostle Peter who spoke up and looked at Jesus and said, well, I'll tell you who I think you are. I think that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Peter, and Jesus then looked at Peter and he said to Peter, Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by man. No, this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, Jesus said, that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this statement that you just made, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I am going to build my ecclesia, my movement, my gathering, not building, not gathering place, my movement of people called the church. And the gates of Death, Jesus said. See, we translate this as hell, but the literal translation is the gates of death. The gates of death, Jesus said, will not overcome it, which meant no matter how many people die and no matter who dies, this gathering, Jesus said, it's going to continue forever and ever and ever. And not long after this event, Jesus himself died. And for a moment, for a brief moment, it seemed as if this thing called church was actually over before it even began. But then all of a sudden, Jesus rose from the dead, and he spent the next 40 days with his followers. He gathered them together on a hillside, and he gave them his final instructions. And in Matthew's account of this event, we refer to those instructions as the Great Commission. But in Luke's account of this event, Luke actually tells us that during the course of those 40 days, Jesus gathered with his disciples, with his other followers, and he told them about the beginning of the church. Take out your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 1, which is on page 1690 if you're using one of those Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Now Acts chapter 1, we're going to begin reading together this morning in verse number 6 which actually starts out by saying this. So when they, when they met together, now understanding the they here is really important because this they is Jesus' 11 disciples. It's also Jesus' mother Mary. It's the other Mary and her sister Martha. It's Jesus' younger brother, James, because by now, at this point, he's also a follower of Jesus. And it's also another handful of other followers of Jesus. That's the they. So when they met together, they asked Jesus, Lord, 
are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because at this point, Jesus' own followers, they're not thinking in terms of a growing gathering. They're not thinking in terms of a multicultural, multi-ethnic mission or movement that we would call church. They're just simply thinking that Jesus has come to reestablish a new kingdom. And so, verse 7, Jesus says this to them. He says, listen, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you, he said, but you will receive power, right? Which is an incredible idea to them. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you, as a result of that power that you are going to receive, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. And the word that Jesus uses here, that when, he, when we translate this as witness, means the very same thing as we would think about a witness in court. It's a person who's going to accurately recall events as they happened. It's a person who's accurately going to recall details of conversations of who said what and who did what when something happens. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said, in Jerusalem, which is where they were, in all Judea, which was the surrounding area, and Samaria, which was a place they didn't want to have anything to even do with, as well as to the ends of the earth, to which the, the, the followers of Jesus gathered together must have been thinking to themselves, Jesus, wait a second, time out. To the ends of the earth, Jesus, do you understand how, how big that is? I mean, there's only, there's just barely of a hundred of us even here today right now. To, to which Jesus could have easily said to them, listen, you don't even know how big the world actually is, but this message, right, this movement, this gathering, right, that I am creating, it's going to touch down in every single part of the world. And that is exactly what ended up happening. In fact, we don't usually think about this, but these verses here are one of the most significant prophecies in all of the scriptures, and you and I are in some way a fulfillment of that prophecy. And then about two weeks later, after this event occurs, Jesus himself disappears. And this group of about 100 followers of Jesus, they go back into the city of Jerusalem and they continue to meet together and they continue to pray together. And about two weeks later, something amazing happened at the Jewish celebration of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was actually a Jewish festival. And so just like every other Jewish festival, the city of Jerusalem was just filled with Jewish people who had come back to Jerusalem from all over the world. From, uh, we actually find out later in the book of Acts that there are people there from more than a dozen different regions and nations of, of the world. They've all come and gathered into Jerusalem for this, this celebration of this Jewish festival, Pentecost. And so when all these, Jewish, all these non-Jewish people are there, th this group of 100 people, they're meeting together, they're praying together, these followers of Jesus, and suddenly on this day, on Pentecost, the Holy Spirit shows up amongst them and he manifests himself in an amazing, powerful way, exactly as Jesus predicted. And the Holy Spirit manifested himself in such a way that these hundred or so followers of Jesus, they are suddenly able to speak in the languages of all the people who gathered in Jerusalem on that very day for that very, very specific festival known as Pentecost. And they are now able to speak to all of these people in their native languages. And when all these people from all over the world, when they see these Galileans and they hear these Galileans speaking to them, in their own languages, Luke tells us in chapter 2, verse 7, he says that they were utterly amazed 
And they asked, are all, not, are all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us can actually hear them and understand them in our native language? In the middle of the city, in the middle of Jerusalem, there's all this energy, there's all this excitement, there's all these questions of how are these people speaking to us right now? How can we understand what they're saying? And what is this mysterious event? What is this incredible event that they're talking about? The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. Somebody killed him. Somebody crucified him. What is going on? He rose from the dead. In verse 12, Luke tells us that they were amazed and they were perplexed. And they asked one another. They asked one another, what does this mean? Because the significance of this whole event was that what they were speaking in was not a language. It was not for a people. No, it was multicultural. It was multinational. It was multi-ethnic, just as Jesus had predicted. And so as the excitement begins to build, as the tension begins to build, as people begin to crowd in and gather around and talk to each other and try to figure out what's going on, some people there just thought everyone that day was drunk. Other people said, no, he's not drunk, she's not drunk. They're actually speaking and she's actually speaking in my language. And in the middle of all of this chaos, it's Peter who decides this is the time. This is the perfect opportunity for the very first sermon because it's just as Jesus predicted it is just as Jesus describes and so Peter stands up to where everybody who's gathered that day can see him and he tells them all listen this should not surprise you this should not be a new thing to you because God actually told us about this 900 years ago he told us about this whole thing through the prophet Joel And then Peter looks at the people that day, and in verse 22, he says this, People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God actually did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. And remember, this is only two months after Jesus' crucifixion. So when all those people in Jerusalem that day that had come into the city, when they heard the name Jesus of Nazareth, they thought to themselves, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. I know who he's talking about. I I, I was there that day on the outskirts of the temple when he gave that message. I I remember seeing him drag his cross through the, the city. Oh yeah, I know who you're talking about, Jesus of Nazareth. He actually healed one of my relatives. I know who you're talking about. I was actually there on the edge of the crowd that day when he performed that incredible miracle. Jesus of Nazareth, I know exactly who you're talking about. Verse 24. God raised him from the dead, Peter said, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold. On him. Verse 32 God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. 
And again, notice, this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. These followers of Jesus, they were not simply giving testimony to what it is that Jesus taught. No. See, this is so important for us to understand, because right from the very beginning, right in the very first century, these followers of Jesus, they weren't simply teaching what Jesus taught. No, they were, in the very beginning, Jesus' followers, being a follower of Jesus, meant not only embracing a teaching, it meant embracing an event. It meant embracing this idea that we are witnesses to the fact that he was crucified. We are witnesses to the fact that he has actually been brought back, that God brought Jesus back to life, not years ago. No, just simply two months ago. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God... Jesus, Peter said, has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you, what you now see and hear. In other words, Peter's saying everything that's going on right now, all of this is from God himself. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, and now Peter gets really personal, whom you crucified. Right? In other words, Peter's looking at these people and he's saying, listen, some of you were there and you did nothing. Some of you saw what was happening that day and you walked away. Some of you heard the crowd accusing him and you did not speak up. You didn't defend him in any way. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what what shall we do? You're, You're right, we didn't defend him. What shall we do? We didn't stop him. Brothers, what should we do? It's too late. It's over. What shall we do? And and Peter replied, he looked at all of them, and he said to them in verse 38, Attend church regularly. If you don't know why that's funny, you should be reading your Bible right now. Because it doesn't say that. I just made that part up. Right, but see, see, this is the th- here's why I want to just pause here for a moment. Right? Because isn't it true for most of us when we think of the word church? Isn't this what we think? I've got to get back to church. I've got to go to church. I've got to get in church. I've got to attend church. But right, as we go through the story, as you picture the event, and you can feel the emotion, you can feel the tension, you can can feel the excitement, the unpredictability, I mean, that response, that wouldn't have even made any sense, would it? No, see, this is what Peter actually says in verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then he makes this incredible promise and he says, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then listen to what he says next. This might be a brand new idea for some of you. He says this in verse 39, in the end of verse 39. This promise is for you. It's for you. But it's also for your children. And it's also for all who are far off. Now, do you know who the all who are far off is? See, that's you. That's you, right? And that's me. 
right? That's our kids that haven't even been born yet. That's our grandchildren that haven't even been born yet, right? It's your parents who embrace the message of Jesus before you. It's everyone who is far off. See, this is Peter's way of telling us right from the very beginning, this isn't a Jerusalem thing. This isn't a this generation thing. It isn't just an us thing. Right, This thing Peter's saying, which has begun in our time, this message, this idea, all the supernatural power that we are witnessing and we are experiencing, this whole thing, it is for us. But it's also, it is also for our children, it is also for all who are far off, who are far off geographically, and all who are far off chronologically. This is something Peter is saying that is going to reach beyond our lifetime because remember Jesus said the gates of death will not stop it which means this generation may die but the movement's going to continue to move this generation may die but the church is going to continue to thrive this generation may die but this is a multi-generational message the message of this event it's going to touch people who are far off it's going to touch people who are far away people who haven't even been born yet people who live in a part of the world that have never even heard anything of the story it is for all peter says who the Lord our God will call. And those who accepted Peter's message on that day in verse 41, Luke tells us, those who accepted that message that day were baptized. And 3,000 people were added to their number on that day 3000 people think about this who had heard of and had witnessed the acts the life and the miracles of Jesus 3000 people in Jerusalem right who could have said don't miss this time out I would like the crowd now to come with me because I can take you to where Jesus' body is buried. I can take you to the place where they put his body in the ground because this wasn't years ago. This was just two months ago. It was in the very same city where Jesus was crucified, the very same city where Jesus rose from the dead, that 3,000 people said, listen, we believe. We believe, and they joined the church on its very first day, and they were baptized. I mean, can you even imagine the energy and the emotion and the tension that this created in the city that day? Thousands and thousands of people saying publicly that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, that he was crucified by Rome, but he has risen from the dead. We believe and we repent of our sins and we want to be baptized and we want to be included in this brand new gathering, this new assembly, this new congregation that would eventually become known as Jesus' church. It was just as Jesus predicted. It was just as Jesus described. And 2,000 years later, here we are. And to this day, do you know what the only thing is that actually connects Protestants and Catholics and Baptists and Orthodox? 
and charismatics. Do, do you know what it is that connects people from every single culture, every single nation, every single age of history from 2,000 years ago all the way to our day today who claim the name of Jesus? Do you know what the only thing that we all have in common actually is? The only thing that connects us? Right? The only point of common ground that we all have. Right? If you take every single believer from the beginning all the way through now, right? it's not the, the, the way that we worship. Right? It's not our style. It's not our liturgy. Right? The only thing that we have in common, the only point of connection is that we all believe that Jesus, he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. That he rose from the dead and that his death, it actually paid for the sin of the entire world just as Jesus predicted. It was not about a location because there was no location. And don't miss this, it wasn't just for church people because there weren't any yet. And it wasn't about a tradition or a style or a way of doing certain things because there was none of that either. But there was excitement and it was dynamic. It was unpredictable at times and people didn't always know what to expect. And the world would never, ever, ever be the same after the church. And you know what's so amazing? Is ever since that very first day, ever since that very first day, there has always been a remnant. There's always been a group of people who understood that this movement must continue to move. This movement must continue to spread. That this is a message that must touch down in every age and stage of history. It must touch down in every region of the world, every culture of the world, every language of the world, and in every generation of the world. There's always been a group of people who said, listen, I am willing to give my life so that the scriptures, so that the story of Jesus, so that the story of the church may actually be read and put into the hands of regular people so they can read it, so they can understand it, so they can learn about what it is that God has done in our world. And so they can say, isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? I want to be a part of that thing, this thing called church. Look at what God has done in our world. There's always been a group of people who've understood that ever since the day of Pentecost, God no longer inhabits a building. That ever since the day of Pentecost, on that day, the Holy Spirit has been made available. Since that day, he has been made available to every single person who claims the name of Jesus. And if you claim the name of Jesus, then the God of the universe, he now dwells in you. He lives in you. And when we gather together in Jesus' name, we are part of this thing called church. That is why we are here today. And when you gather in a group in your home, you gather as the church. When you gather together to go and to help the hurting or the poor, you're gathering as the church. When you gather together and you go overseas or you go across the country or across the state or across our community and you help the poor, you build houses for people, you are gathering together as the church. When you hold each other's hands and you pray and you ask for the, our Heavenly Father, you ask for the Holy Spirit, you ask for Jesus to work and to move in the lives of people, you are gathering together as the church. Every time you serve with kids, 
Every time you lead a small group for middle school kids or high school kids, every time you go on a trip someplace and you spend your time with them, you are going and gathering together as a church. There's always been a group of people, there's always been a remnant of people who understood, listen, it's not about a location, it's not about a style, it's not about an approach. It is about gathering around this one very simple idea that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He died on the cross for the payment of our sins, and he rose again on the third day. And this message, it is for everyone. This movement is for everyone. Church is for everyone. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Let me pray for you this morning.